there's all this mystery in my head about like, like what was going through his head? Why was he walking straight? Why didn't he follow the trail? Like, why didn't he turn around? Like, there's all these things you just don't understand. I'm Rebecca Huntington. You're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, with support from the Community Foundation of Jackson Hole. Backcountry Zero is a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. You can support this project and the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue. Make an online donation today by going to tetoncountysar.org slash donate. That's tetoncountysar.org slash donate. Consider sharing the fine line with a friend, especially if they like venturing into the backcountry. Bernard Reitman had a great sense of wanderlust. His drive for adventure landed him in Jackson Hole in the 1960s, back when tourists only came in summer, and innkeepers routinely hung up a gone fishing sign after Labor Day. After decades of exploring the valley, Reitman knew the Granite Creek drainage well. He often went hunting there solo. On September 23, 2015, carrying a sandwich, a water bottle, and a rifle, the 84-year-old went in search of deer. He'd get out of the house really early before sunrise and be like a proper hunter, properly out there, you know, when the deer are out in the morning mists and the sun has just popped up. He would then hunt around for a few hours in the morning, have some lunch, and then drive home. So he was usually home a little after lunch, and that was pretty routine, and he went hunting pretty often. Wyoming is a pretty difficult hunting environment. It's a lot more like armed hiking. You, You walk around and you hope to see something. That's pretty much what my dad did. He would think about places he think there might be deer or whatever and walk around with his gun and hope for the best. Usually got a deer every season, but not every year. My name is Max Rietman. My dad emigrated from Germany in the mid-50s, like Eisenhower was president then. <laughs> Literally like in search of the American dream, search of opportunity, and just uh, had that wanderlust, that desire to travel the, travel the world and see things and go to the U.S. and build something for himself. He traveled around the U.S. and did all kinds of things like working in meatpacking houses. And he eventually landed in Alaska and worked on this like military installation as a handyman. And there you get room and board for free. So you literally could sock away every single penny. So he did that and saved up some amount of money and mm, stumbled on Jackson Hole. And it was not even a ski resort yet. So it was only a summer season. There was this like dude ranch that was failing. And so he managed to put together a loan. So ended up uh, owning the the building that that he eventually called the Heidelberg. And he uh, ran it as a restaurant for 20 years or 30 years. He called himself an old timer. And there was this kind of community of, you know, people that were here at the beginning, quote unquote, whatever that means. Uh, And uh, he, you know, he, he worked really hard to have this restaurant and was always tight on finances. But by the time he retired uh, and had the apartments, he was had a nice steady income and was much more relaxed. And... The day before his dad went hunting, Max Reitman made a video call to Bernard to introduce him to his newest granddaughter. She was just a few days old. After growing up at the Heidelberg and then going to college in New York, Max now lives in Zurich, Switzerland with his wife. They have two children. That video chat was the last time Max spoke with his dad. The next day, he got a call from Bernard's partner. Suzanne Ferrand, she's actually originally Belgian, but has been li- lived in the U.S. a long time as well. 
I mean, they traveled like all over the world. Like they went to South America on these trekking trips, all over Europe, like Turkey, Russia, anywhere you could imagine, and really took advantage of being retired and had a great time. Like I only know now the story. He went hunting to Granite Creek, and when he went hunting in the morning, he was home by two o'clock in the afternoon. And so they usually like they call it Kaffeekuchen, like a German thing. It's like tea and coffee, uh, tea and cake, coffee and cake in the in the afternoon. When he wasn't home at two, Suzanne she was immediately worried. So she actually went to go talk to um, one of the guys who lives in the, lived in the cabins. Like they had done some hunting stuff together or talked about hunting together. So she went and told him, "Hey, he was, he was at Granite Creek. He didn't come home. Can you please go have a look or something?" And then so he immediately took off for Granite Creek. And then I think it, then she called the police as well. Yeah, we got the call Wednesday night. I'm Alex Norton. I'm with Tijuana County Search and Rescue. So Max and I went to school together from kindergarten through college. Yeah. Um, Wilson School, middle school, high school here. Lived together for four years in upstate New York. As is typical with a search and rescue call, when we get the original call out, you don't know who it is. At that point, I was on the advisory board. So I got the initial call and that's probably when I found out who it was and knew that it was Bernard. The first night I was searching, I was on the trail, you know, that that initial search up the high line because it was night, which limits our ability to sort of cover a wide scope. We searched along the trail and we essentially fanned out off the trail so that you could always see the person even in the dark who was to your right and to your left. One group just went quickly up the trail to the top and worked back. And then another group worked from the bottom up and sort of met in the middle with some yelling and, you know, trying to cover that whole space if if he had stepped off the trail a little ways. And while we were out uh, in the field, the search planning team had started to plan the search for the next day. They're the ones that ended up staying up throughout the night. And so I went home, got a little bit of sleep, got up in the morning that second day, which I guess would have been Thursday. My role was operations chief in the field. And then as people identified what they thought were clues or finished one assignment and needed a new assignment, they came in and checked in with the operations chief, which was me. And I was basically stationed right there where Bernard's, right next to Bernard's car. His car was parked like aiming at the Highline Trail. So it's clear that he like, I'm going to do the Highline Trail. And then he like, turned his car around and like parked it looking at the Highline Trail. Since he was originally German, he always liked to have a German car. And so he's probably one of the few people I've ever met that would go hunting with, you know, a Mercedes SUV. And he just had a tarp in the back. And if he'd get a deer, he just chucks it in the back and like didn't think twice about it. But not too many people, you know, go hunting in a luxury car. Yeah, most people go hunting in their beat up old pickup truck or something. Uh, And so I was sitting there throughout the day on Thursday out in the field once everybody reported back. And we all checked in. I went home. Eventually, I got to talk to Alex, but he was actually out there, and Granite Creek doesn't have any reception. If you walk up the Highline Trail to the very tippy top of it, and you get to this ridge, then you have reception. But in the bottom of the, the, the canyon there, you, there's no reception. I'm a volunteer. Everybody on the search and rescue team is volunteer, except for one paid position, the coordinator uh, with the with the sheriff's office. I had a fairly big deadline at work. My wife's grandfather also passed away on like Wednesday. So I got back on 
Thursday night after being out all day, said hi to the family, talked to Max on the phone. And then the way the search works is that a plan gets developed through the night. Um, and then it essentially gets passed off to the incident commander and operations chief for the next day. The incident commander and the operations chief then organize all of the assignments first thing in the morning and do a briefing for all of the searchers where they provide the searchers with their maps and assignments, directions, how long they're supposed to search, when they're supposed to be back, when they're supposed to check in, what the radio frequencies are, all of these things so that the searchers are organized and safe and accounted for. Um, and then everybody goes out in the field. And while everybody's going out in the field, it's there's two parallel efforts going on. There's a operations effort um, to take in clues that are found, to modify assignments as needed, um, et cetera. And then there's a planning effort for the next operational period. Whenever you get into the big searches, you're always assuming that it's going to go another operational period. On Friday, I helped with sort of the organization and getting people out the door in the morning. Then I went to work, um, went back to my day job, helped with the debrief Friday night. New Max was coming in Saturday night. I was incident commander on Saturday. So did that all day. Then I remember as the debrief was going on, I left to go get Max. Yeah. And it had been super hot and dry the whole time, but it was pouring rain. The initial profile was an older hunter. Sort of when you look at that profile, hunters are going to be in search of animals. They're going to follow ridges and valleys but not necessarily trails um, bernard's age was going to limit his mobility versus other hunters hunters are also aware of how far they are from the vehicle because if they achieve their goal of killing an animal they have to get the animal back to the truck one of the clues that we found was we found a dead deer on thursday in an area near the road that would have really fit that profile of an older hunter achieving the goal of hunting. It looked extremely promising. Game and Fish, I think, came and looked at it to try and determine ballistics and whether the, the caliber of the bullet matched Bernard's gun. That got a lot of attention on Friday. I remember Saturday really being about reevaluating the profile. There was a big component of that that was work done by the sheriff's office with the family. At that point, I think Max was a larger part of the conversation. It's not as it's not as simple as an an older hunter. Um, what are some other components going on? I recall Saturday being a lot about profile refinement um, and looking at some other potential aspects. My dad, uh, like on the scale of like his fitness, he was walking every day, even twice a day sometimes on this like one mile, little one mile walk. And so there was a lot of debate about like how much, how far can an 84 year old walk? A lot of people thought, oh, they can't walk that far or this steep or whatever. I was even skeptical. We walked up this trail and I'm like, geez, this is pretty hard work. Could my dad really like hoof all the way up here? You know, we were discussing with his personal physician and they, he was like, you guys don't, you're totally underestimating him. He's really strong and could go much farther than you think. This Highline Trail, like Alex talked about, it goes up about a mile and it's like steep, serious up hiking. There was so much debate. It's like, could he 
hike all the way up here? Or would he hike all the way up here? Why would he do that? The, the summer before he came to visit us in Switzerland, I noticed that his mental state, like chit-chatting and stuff, everything was really normal. But we, like, we had him in a little hotel just down the street and he kept getting confused in the hotel. So it was clear that like, he had early stages of dementia type effects where you get confused where you are or how to get to where you want to go. You get kind of stuck in this mindset of like, I need to, I need to make progress towards my goal and I'm stuck and I don't know how to make progress. And they just like in this loop of trying to make progress. So I, I went down to see him and he was like stuck at the wrong door. And he clearly been standing there for several minutes trying to figure out why is this door not opening. A younger person without some mental decline would have just been like, oh, this clearly this is the wrong door. I must be a little mixed up. Where is the door? And they would look around a bit more and kind of reset themselves. There are some profiles for like older people with dementia being lost and they tend to just they tend to just walk in straight lines. They just they just get stuck in like, well, I'm lost, but something's happening, so I'll just keep walking. I think that's the tricky part is like I saw him in a totally un like a foreign environment to him, like being in Zurich, visiting us in a hotel. But like his everyday, I mean, his whole environment was like totally known to him and he had this routine. So like he got in his car, he drove to Albertsons, he bought some grapes, like he got back in his car, he went to the bank, he dropped off a check. So that like he had this very, very clear routine. As much as the Valley has changed over the years, the bank he uses is the same, like it's the same building, it's the same turn on the street. For Suzanne, like she sees him in his routine. So maybe she doesn't even notice any mental decline where I suddenly noticed very clearly when I saw him out of his element. The night I landed, we went to the search and rescue offices and I went to like see the map. You try to build a probability map of where is this, where do we think this person could be? What are some like higher likely zones? And they call that sort of the, the expert knowledge. Like, okay, well, he's probably not on a cliff. Figure out where are the highest likely areas and the lowest likely areas. You start with no information, just this expert knowledge. And then you start looking or whatever you're doing. If you look in an area and he's, you didn't see him, you then lower the, the the probability in that area. And so that like when you go look and you and then come back with the new idea of, okay, he's probably not here. Let's change the probability distribution there. A very typical thing. And so this is iterative process of you have a, a distribution, like a, like where do we think he is? And then you go out and sample, like look around and sample that distribution then update your distribution and then you, you do it again. And so you iterate your way through this kind of approach. I did my bachelor's in electrical engineering and got really hooked on applied math. So I did a master's in applied math and then ended up doing a PhD, what they call computational science. Uh, I don't really, I focus more on physical systems. And I don't do a lot of statistics, but like obviously when you do all this education and all this, hang out with scientists all the time, you like eventually start goofing around with some statistics and kind of know your way around the lingo and certain techniques. From the Granite Creek Road, the Highline Trail climbs steeply through sagebrush meadows and dense forest. Once you leave the popular dirt road, the place can feel pretty empty, with overgrown trails and signs that are few and far between. In episodes four and five of The Fine Line, we talked with three sisters, who found themselves stranded for nearly a week. They lost their way along another section of the Highline Trail in July of 2015 just a couple of months before Bernard went missing. The search for Bernard lasted six days. Like you get this call and it's like, oh my God, something happened. I get on a plane, get over there. And then you like run into this search and rescue operation and they're doing these like interesting, the technique, I'm like, you're kind of excited and you're talking to everyone and you're like, 
discussing his abilities and you're looking at this map and you're it's almost like you forget that you're there to like find your dad like i don't want to sound like a sociopath and saying like this this process was interesting or fun but there was this grief part of it and then there was this like this is kind of exciting to look for him because you go out in the woods and there's all these people and they have dog teams and they had a helicopter and like you know it's like this huge operation and you're in the middle of it and like there's all these people and you could, you talk to everyone and they talk about your dad and they're, oh, I knew your dad back in the 80s and we did this trip together. And like, so you meet all these really like cool people. And the biggest takeaway from Search and Rescue when you're taking part of it, it's like you're the tiniest little cog in this gigantic machine. So like no single person by sheer force of will like is going to solve the problem. Like my dad used to keep the roof free of ice by sheer force of will. He literally went up there with a sledgehammer and like smashed ice down from the roof to keep the roof clean. Search and Rescue, it's by definition a team effort. Teton County Search and Rescue can't find somebody by just working harder. We need more people in an organized fashion to cover more area. I don't think the call for general public volunteers went out until the weekend. That briefing in the morning on Saturday that I did as the incident commander was, if you've been to the Search and Rescue building, the helicopter hangar was full of people. A lot of community members, you know, as Max had said, Bernard was a well-known figure, especially in the Wilson community, if not in the greater community at large. That Wilson community was very well represented over the weekend when we had made that call for for public help. You know, it's, it's interesting what he was talking about of the sort of the grief versus science piece. And there's a lot of search and rescue. It, it, a lot of times we don't know exactly who it is, I, you know don't have a personal connection like I did with Bernard, but there's a lot of detachment, whether you do or you don't, um, to the task at hand that's sort of necessary and, and managing that is is something that we actually talk about and try to work on. I remember picking Max up from the airport and what we talked about was the statistics, like Bayesian statistics and the search method and the maps. And we talked through all of all that stuff and Max had looked at kind of how searches work in other contexts. I think you were looking at a, a France air search. Yeah, the- yeah. So there's this there's this famous case, Air France lost a plane flying from I think Brazil to Paris and in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean somewhere and they had limited, they of course had like some amount of data where the last known location was but it was the autopilot had failed and then there was like pilot error that ended up causing the plane to crash. They didn't know exactly where it was, and they desperately wanted to find out what had happened because there was literally zero information about what had happened. This plane just disappeared in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and no one knew what happened. And then they brought these statisticians on board. Like France obviously has a large academic community, so they brought these like academic statisticians on board, and the statisticians were like, "Okay, you guys are being a little sloppy. We're gonna like, you know, add a lot of rigor to this." and so they basically came up with like, okay, last known location, we're going to build statistical models for how the plane is flying, what that wind was like, you know, if, when it lands in the ocean, how it would drift in the water. And they had all this. So they basically built like a big probability map of where this thing was likely to be. They have these underwater rovers that go look for the, for the plane on, under, underwater. So one difference is looking underwater with a rover compared to looking in the, like the middle of the woods and in, in the mountains is like, a rover, you have this very, very strict search pattern in a grid. If you don't see the plane, it's definitely not there. When you update your probability map, your probability in the areas you search to go to zero because the robot sees that the bottom of the ocean and it's like 
sand and if there's definitely not a plane there so it's there's nothing to hide behind so that they they then start doing this and when they found the plane like was exactly in one of their probability maps just kind of where they would expect but maybe they were lucky so we can't run like a hundred like a hundred thousand plane crash simulations to see oh actually they were their technique was flawless but part of it is that the statisticians they set down this probability map and they have this procedure for updating the map they're going to say like trust the statistics don't go back and search again where you think it was just based on some intuition. So like, let's follow, really follow the procedure. Now in retrospect, the family and a lot of the people who knew him just were so convinced that he couldn't walk so far. But like where we found him, he was six miles or five miles over a hill and down a wash and along a creek. So it was really far. And I think if you had really, like if the like they really had leveraged at the time, really leveraged that idea of, like we've looked up and down this trail and all around these areas in the woods so much ending with dog teams and everything let's bring those pretty far down like in probability and let's let's bring up other areas possibly farther out than we think but that's probably more likely than him being under a tree because we've looked so much and so i think that's the like the, the t my sort of takeaway was like trust the technique let the technique drive a little bit of where you're going to start looking. And Alex has talked about that. Let yourself trust that the person could go farther than you think. I think I've said this before on this podcast, which is like when the search is all over, it's obvious what the answer was. Right. And like, it's, it's easy to look back in retrospect and be like, oh yeah, this is exactly what we should have done clearly. And, it, and it's a lot harder, like in, in the moment that that's impossible. But, and it's interesting, this dynamic between, sort of the 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 search theory and the emotional connection and the just like this is this is real life and you know max's family and so that that air france piece is 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 used i mean that's that it's it's famous and it's used and it's why search and rescue teams use this use this bayes framework um and because you can you can go in, you can create search areas, assign an initial probability, ask the team leaders when they come back from the field what they feel like their probability of detection was. If he if he was in that area, how likely were you to find him? And then you can do the math if you want, or you can just sort of fuzzy the math and lower one probability and raise another probability as you assign teams. In retrospect, we didn't do we didn't trust the math, like Max said. I think that one of the components that drove that lack of trust was some of the information from the family and the certainty that he couldn't have gone very far. I think some of it was the evolving profile, the conversation about early stages of dementia and mental decline didn't become apparent until Friday, et cetera. Um, like Max said, not because the family was necessarily trying to hide anything, but those sorts of things maybe weren't as evident within a daily routine as they as they were in a in a in a, a foreign environment, which Granite Creek is, which Zurich was. And then we ran into this issue of now we've got all these volunteers. Having a lot of community volunteers poses an opportunity to do a certain type of search, but limits the ability for search and rescue who's now responsible for these public volunteers to control a search where you just send everybody for a 10 mile hike along every trail system in the area. 
because ultimately with sort of a responsibility for the safety and, and organization of the volunteers, it's easier to search an area with a bunch of volunteers than it is to break up the volunteers into groups of two because you can't send a search and rescue person with everybody and we don't have enough radios to keep track of all of those people, et cetera. There, logistically, there are types of searches you can do with 100 community volunteers that make sense. Um, and there's types of searches that that don't optimize that additional resource. And if we had been following the model, we would have switched over the weekend to reach further out into areas with lower probability of detection, but cover some of these areas a little bit, um, which might have helped us find Bernard faster. But we had also sort of asked for these community volunteers, and that's not logistically as possible. You can't use the resource that way. You know, in this conversation and looking back on it, that's sort of an interesting, an interesting limitation. Going forward, one of the things that came out of this a, a year after the search, um, I was at a conference. A search and rescue member who's also a GIS computer programmer, geospatial data analysis. He did some research on search data, thinking about this Air France model that everybody was using, and asking. In the upland context, in the mountain context, is it really realistic to think about search areas as um, how far are they from the last known point in a radius? That makes sense in the ocean because gravity is the acting factor. The plane is going to land on the bottom somewhere. You've essentially got a, a fairly uniform surface to work from as it, as the as the plane works through the body of water to its resting place the bottom isn't uniform surface but that the water is a uniform surface it's got currents and act on it but you can really think about this area and so the statistical model that was built to find that air france flight made a ton of sense in the ocean this guy matt jacobs his question was does it make sense in a topographic upland context and so he searched a bunch. He he researched a bunch of searches to look at where people were found, and identified that it's very unlikely you're going to find somebody away from a trail. The highest likelihood is the intersection of a trail and water, then a trail, then water, then a ridge, then a valley. It's very likely you're ever going to find somebody on a slope, right? Even a hunter. And his recommendation operationally at a search and rescue is is not to do big area searches where you're trying to act like the rover on the bottom of the ocean and walk a perfect grid. He said, break up into smaller teams and cover as many trails, waterways, ridges, and valleys as you can because those are your highest likelihood of find areas. So I was at this conference and he was giving this presentation and he showed three examples or four or five examples, I can't remember exactly, of big searches that got national press and the location of the find was just outside of the primary search areas and primary search effort. I'm Rebecca Huntington, and you're listening to The Fine Line, a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. Find more episodes online at backcountryzero.com. Like the, the meeting at Search and Rescue headquarters is super early. It's like at 7 or 6.30 or something. So I just like got up at 4.30 or 5, made like 12 sandwiches or something to, so I'd have food for the whole day. Suzanne's son-in-law 
came and picked me up, and we drove to search and rescue headquarters, got there on time, and then they did a little debriefing, and then I said hello to everyone and said thank you for coming or something like that. And then we just, you know, everyone got in cars and we drove out to Granite Creek and we had our assignments and I was assigned the first day to a team that hiked up the High Line. We got to the top of the High Line and we wanted to scan this area that had a pretty like dense undergrowth. So we walked a big grid in an area with relatively high undergrowth and a lot of bushes. And ironically, like if we had just literally kept walking and walked into the next valley, that's where we would like, well, I don't know if we would have found him, but that's where he was. We were kind of on the right track. We just stopped too early. But of course, we had our assignment. We looked in the undergrowth. And I mean, the, the impression of it is you like get up there. You're on this team of like, I think we were like 15 people or something with one or two search, one search and rescue guy, maybe one other guy with a, uh, a walkie talkie and a guy carrying a GPS. And you, I mean, it's almost overwhelming. You're like walking and you're like, God, these woods is so big. Like if you were one person, you couldn't. You can't search anything. I mean, it was incredibly beautiful weather. It was sunny and gorgeous. And and you're hiking around in these beautiful woods and like, and you're having these conversations with people. And and then like, the, the like optimistic side of you is like, maybe he's still alive. And then like sort of the pessimistic side of you is like, I'm looking for a body, like, ugh. You have a lot of emotions kind of pulling in different directions. You're trying to be careful because like the last thing you want is to like, like stumble over some tree and break your ankle or something. And then suddenly like, you know, you're like, oh, we need to go rescue Max. Like, I uh, don't want that. So yeah, you're just overwhelmed with the scale of the whole thing. And then the second day I was assigned to a dog team and we were hiking up around, to- like up closer to where they found the deer. And so we were, wa- I was just with this one lady who had a dog who was trained to look for, like to smell for people. I guess the technique is you hike up first and the, the, the way that the wind goes, it actually kind of flows up the mountain. So you start at the top and you walk, you walk your way down and like let, let the dog kind of lead you along the way. And so you're walking along and you have this dog and you're like trying to, see, you know, trying to be careful looking. And it's kind of exhausting because you're constantly looking and looking and looking and looking under every bush and every tree. And uh, it's pretty tiring. Uh, it's hard work. So that's like something I talked to one of my friends and they had done this thing like a chain and you hike up and you like, look, you don't even have a trail. You're just literally walking up the mountain, like straight up it. And you're looking under every dang thing. And like some yeah. of my friends did it and they had like, they were so like, oh, we're going to find him. We're going to do this. And they're like, they were so motivated and they were, and they were crazy. They're crazy fit people. And I think they like, they just broke themselves on the mountain trying to do that again and again and again. They were basically doing like a, a grid search with a, like a long chain of people walking literally straight up the mountain. They were trying to be the ocean rover. Ocean rover. Yeah. You're supposed to pick up every little thing you find in the woods. We came back and there was this table just like full of junk, like Old Swiss Army knives, Leatherman cases, like water bottles. And it's like, is any of this stuff your dad's? Like, uh, he had it. Nope, 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 nope. You know, like, uh, none of that stuff is his. Ah, they also found a bear. Like, they, had, they found a, there was a bear living up there. And there was a bear cache that they had, like, stumbled on. So they, like, they're like, oh, my God, maybe he got eaten by a bear. And so they dug it up and nothing, nothing. And there's, like, there were so many things that happened. And, like, there's other hunters up there, right? So then, like, somebody hears a gunshot and they think, oh, Maybe it's him. And then there was like rumors. Search and Rescue has this like social media manager. And then sometimes crazy people come out of the woodwork and say all kinds of crazy stuff. And then like they have to like moderate that. It's such an intense operation. And then the police start investigating and then they hear these crazy like stories from people because they like follow every possible lead. And so they just hear all kinds of crazy stuff and they come to you like, do you think this is likely? Like what? No, that sounds crazy. Like, I don't know the guy's name, but some hunter 
was on a on a different wash on a different creek found a gun just laying on the trail he's like hey cool gun and then he took the gun and amazingly like he was a gps nerd and so he had a gps on him and he put it in a waypoint like right where he found the gun so he's just like waypoint no problem he's like driving home or something and he hears about this uh this search for this hunter in granite creek he's like hey i was just up there oh and i found a gun i wonder that guy that's his gun i guess he calls the police who relay it all the way out to like jackson police and then search and rescue and they're like max 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 they found a gun can you draw your dad's gun and i'm like oh man like i gotta remember back to like you know, I haven't seen, I haven't seen, really thought about the gun or seen the gun in years, but I went hunting with my dad all the time when I was a kid. So I start sketching it out and like, I start remembering all little details. Like, oh, there's a little bit of white here and there's a little inlay right here, a little texture. And it's got a black thing there and a black scope and like this and like that. And then like, oh, he had a waypoint. And then like, it's immediately like everyone gets in, jumps in trucks and they're like, boom, down the granite creek, back up to the other creek, one of the dog teams. And then they like, literally like ran up that trail to that waypoint. I hopped in a car with someone else. Once we knew where to look, the do- I think a dog team, like they literally just walked up the trail and the dog was like, like just beelined it right to him and found him almost immediately and then called it in. And then just, they just, that dog team just turned around and they left and said hello, said bye. And then they were out, out of it. I was with uh, like one of the search and rescue people who they had this truck, like a big old truck with all kinds of gear she was she drove that truck around and she she was the one who had the sign in sheet who was yelling at people to get, make sure they get signed in and everything so that they don't lose anyone and so she was there and she had the walkie talkie and then all of a sudden like max we found your father and it's like it's clear from the tone of voice that like okay they found his body it's been a lot of days and then it's just like all this emotion like oh and then emotions come out and you start crying and you get like very emotional but but then you're excited you're like oh I got, we got to go see him like where is he let's go you know and then you're like Grab your backpack, you sign in with the lady because she yells at you. And then, and then yeah, you just like walk through the stream and you're hiking up this trail and then you like find him. And where you find him, there's trails and there's like some people sometimes go up there with horses, but the tra- like the water, there's these beavers up there that dam up the, the, the river. And so the trail is constantly getting flooded and changing. And so when you go up there, he, he was like, it's like, it was like a mile from a trailhead. So like he had almost made it all the way out. Uh, but I guess in the middle of the night, like he must have hiked and been tired and cold. And, uh, and like the gun, eventually we got the gun back and the barrel was like full, like had a bunch of dirt and mud on it. So he had been like leaning on his gun. Like it was full of bullets. And a younger person in a better mental state would have, you know, started shooting his gun and yelling and like, but all the bullets were there. Like he hadn't shot a single bullet probably. So found him just like kind of lay down under a log with a little bit of like, some grass kind of on top of him. He tried to kind of like get, you know, nestle in under a log and try to stay warm, I guess. And probably just uh, just died of like exposure. You know, like right next to the trail, next to water. If you had had the opportunity to look up that that way, like it, you you know, with a, especially with a dog team, because they can, they would, they smelled him right away. But even with people, if you had like put, you know, one person in the middle and two people on the little, like kind of on the, on the the edge of the creek, like walking along the kind of up from the creek, you probably would have found him right away. Where he was then in, in retrospect was up the Highline Trail, over the top and just a straight line all the way down into the next valley. Like in retrospect, you're like, oh, if you followed the like dementia, older dementia model, walking in straight lines, we would have just been like, well, why don't we check this valley? And then we will, you know, and then boom, we would have found him in like a day. But that's retrospect, right? Like 20, like, 
finding needles in haystacks when you find the needle you're like oh obviously it was just over here like so it was really exciting to find him but then like very emotional and like finding him was like oh my god like, it's just like funny the little details you remember like he, he was like wearing jeans hunting but he always wear like he, he kind of european guy he had this sense of like fashion that was kind of neat and proper so he was wearing like this really nice shirt with like a nice checker pattern to it and it was this european brand and it was perfectly ironed from suzanne and he had it tucked into his you know into his pants and i just noticed all this like a million little details you, you remember about your dad and you see him and it's just like you just notice it you're like immediately know that's him even if you don't see his face you just like burn that's it i got it that's him he had the same boots he wear when i was a kid hunting and the same exact kit like the same gun this all the same like little things I picked through his wallet to grab a few things. Like he had his uh, his AA coin that like 36 years, like uh, alcohol free like coin. And like, so that was really important. Cause like everyone's, oh my God, Max, did you find the coin? Did you find the coin? Like everyone's really like nervous about it. And like, so like a lot of people reached out to me after it happened and they were like, oh my God. Like I just went to visit my, like I went to talk to, call my mom in the old folks home and told her what happened. And like, or like some, like my uncle and he's like that lucky bastard, like get my hunting gun. We're going hunting, you know, like, and then somebody reached out to me and they talked about their like uncle had been like mountaineering and, and had gotten kind of like caught in some snow slide thing and almost died of hypothermia. And he was like, oh my God, it was like so peaceful. You just like get cold and then you get sleepy and that's pretty much it. And then, but then someone saved him and like warmed him up and it was like, he was miserable then, but like he was alive, but he said, like, oh, my God, if I ever die, that's the way I want to go. I mean, probably he laid down, got tired, and bloop, that was it. It's hard to say for sure. You never know. But he had actually, with a friend of his, Yves de Goot, kind of wrote it, like, dictated a sort of memoir. And then I found these notes, like, that he, like, was so contented in his life. And, like, he felt so happy. And he had written that stuff, like, like a month, like a month before, two months before. So it was almost like, and then, like, he had had a mortgage to pay for some remodeling and he had finished it that year. And so like, there was an amazing amount of like coincidence, just like serendipity, like all kinds of ribbons were tied off and he had finished all kinds of projects. And then like, that's it. And one thing that we did, I was really like a cool experience, like a cool, especially a good, like a grieving experience that we, a bunch of us went with a search and rescue guy. So we didn't, <laughs> didn't get lost in the woods. <laughs> we went, we hiked what we thought his possible trail would have been. So we walked up the Highland Trail and then down to the creek, like wash where, where he was. And we like hiked that. And it was pretty rough terrain and it was pretty hard. So like, and and Eve, my dad's friend did it with us, uh, who who is like, uh, like a little bit younger, but also fit. And like, he was pretty like, we finished the whole thing. He was like, oh, that was really hard. Like the Highland Trail, you go up there to the top and then it just takes a right and it goes along the ridge. And so he must've just got to the top and then somehow just kept walking straight instead of taking the trail. It's just like, why would he do that? Like, so there's all these, there's all this mystery in my head about like, like what was going through his head? Why was he walking straight? Why didn't he follow the trail? Like, why didn't he turn around? Like, there's all these things you just don't understand, but. Do you ever wonder if everything was tied in a bow and he just decided to go for it? Oh walk? yeah, I actually thought, think about that. So he had told Suzanne that morning something like, oh, you mean everything to me. I love you so much, which is like kind of unusual. It's almost like there's like some subconscious of him that thought maybe he was going to die that day or something. Right. I've thought about that. Like, yeah, maybe he just decided that he had everything tied in a bow and he's tired. But but the, the, the thing that dissuades me from those ideas, like maybe there's some subconscious there that that right. had. 
but he had like he had all these plans like he was going to go antelope hunting the week after and he had it all scheduled out i think he like he and suzanne he talked about it with suzanne the day before oh yeah next week antelope hunting and he had like he had all this stuff on his calendar that was coming up so like that's like i thought about that a little bit like maybe he just you know went for the sort of the quintessential walk in the woods to get like end things and i thought like maybe that's true but then i like he had so much so many plans it's hard for me to picture like why would you make all these plans and then just be like never mind like the worst part for me is that like i wish i could have gotten into his headspace right like when he was hiking up there like was he was he just in a dementia sort of fugue state where right. he's confused and he's just walking along kind of almost in a panic i mean it's interesting to think about that moment that he decided to go down the ridge yeah in the context of your story about the door in zurich yeah if i found myself on a trail hunting yeah in a location and i was like i don't know where i am yeah the answer in teton county you go down a hill okay, until yeah. you find water and then you follow the water until you get to a road yeah okay yeah and then you walk out the road until you see a person like if you're yeah, in, yeah, if yeah. you're in granite creek that yeah, works yeah. every time exactly yeah you would walk down right yeah. so like that there's a moment of clarity yeah oh there's a river down in there in that decision yeah right that's interesting in in the context of right because the classic dementia yeah was he would have walked on the highline he would have just yeah yeah, yeah he would have walked highline forever and ever so yeah you wonder he was hiking and he was like puffing and puffing and his had kind of gotten to kind of a fugue state where you get confused you get to the top and suddenly you're totally disoriented and you're literally like you come out of it maybe like maybe you then cool down because you're not hiking up anymore and then you're like your blood catches up and your brain kind of relaxes and all of a sudden you're like i literally don't know where i am i could be anywhere on earth probably if i just walked to that river i'll be fine i mean i don't know i'm, I'm far more comfortable in the probability model conversation than in the, yeah, yeah, the, like, the state of mental it's I, like i don't i don't really know like how that works whether there's well, there's moments of clarity and, and how that works. But I do know from kind of the search data is that a dementia profile is different from like a child profile or a drunk profile yeah. in that children and people who are under the influence are drawn to water. Yeah. Far more so than people with dementia. Yeah. People with dementia don't have that sort of attribute yeah you yeah know, in kind of like the, the search characteristic yeah, of yeah. go looking at but it's interesting that like in that sort of moment of maybe clarity or a different set of decision making yeah um processes maybe he was like downhill is easier than uphill and water which is basically the decision that everybody makes yeah yeah right like yeah people go down instead of up and they go to water and he seemingly at some point made that decision when we walked along the, the, we did that hike down to like following his possible trail. It wasn't clear how to start walking down, like off trail. And so we hiked, like when we first got to the, to, to kind of the bend where it turns right and goes along the ridge, it's so thick undergrowth. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to imagine someone choosing like, this is the place I'm going to start walking down because it's so gnarly in there. So we ended up walking a little bit farther. And so almost like you could imagine he he did follow the trail like in a dementia state for a while and then like because it wasn't as steep maybe his brain like blood started flowing a little bit better or something and then he kind of came out of it and was like oops i don't know where i am i don't like remember at all how i got here 
and I could go either way, left or right, on this trail. There's a creek down there, and it looks pretty clear. I bet you I could just walk that. So that's maybe what he did. Uh, so he was like following kind of two profiles: first a dimension one, and then a uh, oh, I don't know where I am. Well, there's water, and it's downhill. I'll do that. Or maybe it was the other way of like he was comfortable in his surroundings, and he recognized his surroundings when he was hunting on a trail. Yeah. And so when he got to the top, he was like, I'm going to go sit down and see if a deer pops out. So he he goes off the trail in sort of a organized, I'm going hunting manner. Yeah, it could be, yeah. Sits down, and that's when he gets confused. Yeah, it could be. And he just started walking in the direction he was pointed. So like if he sat down, pointed in that direction to look for a deer... And, and then, then he, and, and then, then got he, confused, like he, confused. sitting down, like the blood change or something, and he gets really confused and just like, I'll just walk this way. I mean, I, it's more that I'm not even mad at him. I actually, like, I just think about his mental state, how confused and frustrated, and his like scared he must have been. Part of me is also like, he lived this cool life and he died doing something he loved in this incredibly beautiful place. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com. I'm Rebecca Huntington. Thanks for listening.